Good afternoon. Welcome to Navarra FM here on London's number one radio station, Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Aaron Bastani, at Aaron Bastani on Twitter. Today I'm joined by Tom Mills, author of The BBC Myth of a Public Service. Hello, Tom. Hello. Tom is also a lecturer in sociology at Aston uh, University. I've been familiar with his work for several years, but it's because of the release of this book out with Verso Books now that we are having today's conversation. As regular listeners to Navarra will probably know all too well, I'm an ardent critic of the BBC. Uh, I have uh, issues with public service broadcasting per se, what it means in the 21st century, but also the specificities of the BBC and how it reflects, I think, the interests of the British establishment. That'll inform a big part of today's conversation. I guess, Tom, let's get straight into it. We can do the uh, the niceties around Christmas and the Navarra party and uh, your new job at Aston University. Yeah, that's right. Uh, three months ago, I started there. In, Congratulations. Uh, in Birmingham. Yeah, thank you. Congratulations. Always helps when you're writing a book which can be at odds with mainstream thinking that you have an academic position. So, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, it's 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 good in many ways. Uh, but congratulations, not an easy market to do that right now. Um, so let's start with a very simple question: Is it fair to say that the BBC, from its inception, has had a limited understanding of politics as to naturally favour the status quo and therefore the powerful? So what do I mean by that? In short. Its understanding of politics tends to be parliamentary, tends to be institutional, tends to view the interplay between what could now almost be thought of as celebrity politicians as politics and little else. And how new is that? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly true that the BBC, from whenever it's done political reporting, has been heavily orientated towards that world of official politics, Westminster and the rest of it. It's probably worth preceding that point by by saying that in the, its very earliest years, actually, the BBC didn't do much politics. So it was originally, the output was was mainly cultural, you know, it was music, it was drama, it was documentaries and that sort of material. And it had deliberately been kept clear of um, political matters, which were seen as too controversial. And it was only later that it was able to, for example, broadcast from Parliament or, com- or comment on issues which are passing through Parliament. Its news services w- were limited. So it's probably, it's useful, well, was, I think. Was to, that intentional or was that? Well, that, that reflected basically the uh, a couple of things it was the interest of the news corporations so the wire services and the newspapers who who saw the bbc in broadcasting as as a threat to their to their interests and secondly that the uh there was this kind of fear that the new medium was going to be so powerful that it shouldn't be politicised, basically. So these these two particular elements, which were coming from sections of the British elite, the the press um, and the sort of you know those communicative kind of um, structures that were already in place, and and also the politicians. Now the the reason I think it's important to mention that is that we're going to be talking a lot about the politics of the BBC, and I think it's important to to keep in the back of your mind that actually what we're talking about is only one element of what this this organisation does, right? So often if you when you see political debates around the BBC and the BBC's future, the BBC would tend to want you to talk about David Attenborough and Amanda Iannucci rather than, say, Nick Robinson, right? So it, that, that's just a sort of proviso to the to the discussion, uh, which we're not, we won't be talking about that today, but that's that's in the background. Um, now, in terms of its orientation, I mean, absolutely. You know, it's um, since the earliest days, the BBC has been embedded within the sort of um, infrastructure of the British state, and that's reflected its reporting. It's re- reflected the way in which it's... Um, understands political issues, and I'm, I'm not sure we'll come to this later. But even today, that you know that remains the case. That it's heavily orientated towards the world of officialdom and Westminster, and that's broadly speaking the way it tends to understand politics, the way it tends to um, understand its mission, journalistic mission, in terms of impartiality, balance, and these kind of values. Its political orientation and its position vis the establishment, vested interests, seems to have been rendered concrete around the time of the general strike, of course, 1926. Is that a fair assessment? Because you talk about that quite, quite clearly. Uh, And I must say, the book is jam-packed with great historical data, interviews. There's so much to back up what can sound on this show like speculative opinion. But it really, you give a very coherent account of what looks like a real politicisation of the BBC around 1926. How did that happen? Okay, so what basically uh, 1926 was the general strike. The BBC had been around for three years, and um, as I said, it had been sort of restrained from doing much reporting. It had this evening news report, which was based on uh, the wire services, and that was restrained so that people would still be buying daily newspapers. And then with the general strike, 
there's a situation where the newspapers are basically um, shut down, um, which and then the only particular source of news were the the British Gazette, which was the government's propaganda news sheet, basically uh, the Daily Worker, which was coming out of the TUC, so the, both sides of the strike, and then the BBC, which was um, basically in the position of being a very important source of um, of news reporting at what was seen as being a national crisis, and it's been fairly widely acknowledged that um, the BBC didn't in any way report impartially on the dispute. Uh, so Reef famously says that the government can trust us to not be impartial. And, you know, even if you look at someone like Nick Robinson's account where, you know, and, and where he describes how this took place, there's a wide acknowledgement that the BBC actually took the government's side in the strike. I think what, what's been that said, it's been hugely underplayed how the extent to which the BBC was drawn into the establishment and arguably the state itself at the point of the strike. So the, the BBC relocates, the key people at the top of the BBC relocate into the Admiralty and to put that into historical context, you know, I think it would be like moving into the Pentagon. You know, this is the, this is the military centre of the British Empire at this particular moment. And 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 Reef actually writes speeches for the Prime Minister. And then when the strike finishes, he thanks God that um, for that he thanks God and the Prime Minister for steering us through this time. He reads out Jerusalem on the on over the airwaves. So you know, it's a very explicit. Um, so who is who, for listeners? Who is Reef? Apologies, yeah. So Reef is the first general manager of the BBC. who then becomes its first director general. So he's basically the head. He was the first head of the BBC. He was a hugely influential figure in kind of establishing the BBC and a whole notion of um, public service broadcasting. And this guy was writing the speeches of the Prime Minister at the time of the general strike? Yeah, well, not writing, editing. So basically the, 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 the Prime Minister turns up with um, with a speech and, and, and Reef sort of tweaks it for him, changes a few lines that right. he thinks would be more useful and then the, the, the speech finishes and then I, Reef later sort of comments that, oh, there should be a blue plaque on, on my desk because this was such an important moment in terms of breaking the strike. So it's a, you know if you dig if you actually look, dig into like the you know the historical details I mean it's really the the extent of the BBC's kind of um, partisanship during the strike has been hugely underplayed and they confirmed news with Ten Downing Street but never with the the TUC so yeah, official right. official accounts were de facto BBC accounts uh, they, yeah they were an extension of because we say this <laughs> people like me say this frequently and that's been a minority position until very recently about the BBC again we'll talk about that more later but we've often talked about um, the BBC and how it intersects with corporate communications different kind of political communication strategies over the last couple of decades but it was this would seem to me actually there's a real continuity between this stuff around 1926 and and today and so much the BBC to an extent was almost operating like uh, an expression of 10 Downing Street's yeah, no, I, public I, relations. I think, you know, I, I think you need to be a little bit careful about quite quite what's being claimed here. I mean, so the, the, the interesting thing about the general strike is that Reeves says that the BBC was neither commandeered nor was it free. So that's his own reflections on yeah. this moment. And what he meant by that was that the BBC wasn't didn't become a department of state. Yeah. It, didn't, it, it wasn't being directed from Downing Street. But that said, it was clearly in a subordinate position to Downing Street and it was kept under the threat of it being commandeered, right? So it's sort of kept in this grey zone. And the reason that happens is that the people in the cabinet realise if they leave the BBC free, notionally free, but under a constant threat of losing that freedom, that it will be a much more effective instrument for them. It will be much more effective to people to see the BBC as being independent. And the BBC kind of plays to that role. Now, And that sounds very... But that, that fits with the contemporary analysis of the BBC, doesn't it? A critical analysis. Yeah, I, I think that's right. It, it, the sort of... Uh, uh, this kind of ambiguous autonomy. It, the, the argument tends to be from liberals that, you know, this was a sort of a bumpy road with uh, on the road to impartiality. And at some time around the 1960s, the BBC, or 50s and 60s, the BBC becomes more free and more of an authentically independent broadcaster, right? Now, what the book argues, and I, I think this is, this is just correct, is that actually what we learn something very important from that early ambiguous autonomy that's granted during the general strike. And it's just to come back to another point on this, which I think is important. Uh, the, it, having said that the, the BBC, you know, it, it becomes very clearly, very close to the government, it does report news from the TUC. So it doesn't blank that stuff out. You know, it still reports stuff. And um, it but still it has confirmation a, from 10 Downing Street on events? Yeah, on, on particularly important events, right. it, it's, re, it's referring to Downing Street for confirmation. So the, the BBC has this sort of understanding that there's this kind of hierarchy of authority within its news sources. And you can see this now if you do like a content analysis. So just look at what the BBC reports, look at the political sources. At the top of it, you'll have the Prime Minister, Prime Minister's Office, Cabinet Office, 
official opposition and then parliamentarians and then other sources. So you see the sort of, uh, you know, news hierarchy that still exists today where most of the information is coming from these particular sources. And of course, it's coming with particular political agendas. And, and, and that's, that shapes the BBC News reporting. This is a great quote you've got here. Recalling these events three decades later, Reith wrote that, quote, if there had been broadcasting at the time of the French Revolution, there would be no French Revolution. Revolutions, he reasoned, are based on falsehoods and misinformation. And during the general strike, the role of the BBC had been to, quote, announce truth. It was, he thought, quite proper that it had been on the side of the government and had supported law and order. Sounds all too familiar. So that's the general strike. And there's more or less a chapter relating to the early days of the BBC and uh, that liberal account that's given about it being a bumpy ride. I think you really, I think you would discredit that argument, to be quite frank. So moving on, uh, there seems to have been a certain position against anti-war voices in particular in the run up to the Second World War. So we're talking there 1926, but all the way really through the early 30s. After 33, it becomes clear that there's the possibility of war with Germany. Uh, and anti-war voices are almost seen as coterminous with communist voices yeah. amongst elements the BBC hierarchy. So how long did this default setting survive for? When did it start, more importantly? Is this, again, something that is an outgrowth of its inception, or is that something that really sort of is generated at the turn of the decade? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, r really the, the most significant period of this is... Uh, it's the period around the 1970s where you get, um, perhaps we'll talk about this later, but there's a sort of increase in this uh, counter-subversion counter sort of uh, approach to, to, to social movements, basically. But you can, it, it clearly has its um, forerunners in that earlier period. I mean, so it, during the Second World War, you know, pacifists weren't, uh, weren't permitted to appear on air and that was part of national policy. Now, that was in the context of total war, right? So... It's worth bearing in mind that you know the, the, the threat that was um, that the nation was under there, the and, the, and the, the way TUC that that, was you know guaranteeing effectively no strikes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, so, the BBC so the, you know, the, yeah. Um, now, what happens um, slightly after that is that the, uh, the you know the, the the machinery of the British state adapts to the Cold War, and I think this is the sort of significant period where you see this relationship between kind of Cold War anti-communist. Um, Propaganda and you know this, this kind of Cold War ideology, which which becomes very deeply embedded um, within the BBC, and not just in terms of a set of ideas, but in terms of a kind of institutional relationship that develops between the Foreign Office, um, the BBC World Service, BBC monitoring, these other elements of the BBC. I should probably explain that um, what what these different bits of the BBC Please do. Please, right? specifically the the World Service and BBC monitoring. Okay, so the World Service is a section of the BBC. Um, most of the BBC, uh, the book's mainly about um, the BBC's domestic um, operations, but there are these other parts of the BBC that, that do different things. And the World Service, originally the Empire Service, was um, basically funded directly by the Foreign Office and its um, editorial policy was developed in quite close cooperation in that post-war period with um, British officials in the Foreign Office who, who were controlling its funding. And then um, BBC monitoring uh, is basically um, a sort of uh, open source, if you like, intelligence monitoring and translation service that will, will monitor re report radio reports in um, other parts of the world and um, translate them and then distribute them. So if you you know if you go on something like Nexus UK, um, which is a, a newspaper database service, you'll find BBC monitoring reports there, which are English translations of, um, of foreign broadcasts. Well, this was originally part of the kind of infrastructure of the uh, the British warfare state, which then becomes a very important part of um, anti-communist strategy. And uh, on top of that, you have things like the Eastern European Service, and uh, which are you know more or less um, anti-communist propaganda operations, or at least this um, is the World Service. This is the World Service. Yeah which are more or less sort of somewhere between a sort of soft power cultural Cold War instrument and, and a propaganda instrument when it comes towards like specific foreign policy aims of the British state. Can I, can I quote the book? Go ahead. In relation <laughs> to this. So this is uh, fascinating stuff. Um, a privately educated Oxford graduate, Green, so you're referring here to Hugh Green, um, was a liberal. 
but he was very much, and this is fascinating, he was a liberal, right? But he was very much an establishment man and no stranger to the world of security and intelligence. His brother, the novelist Graham Greene, worked for MI6 during the war, as did his sister Elizabeth, who married the MI6 officer Rodney Dennis. Greene himself became head of the BBC's Eastern European Service in 1949, where his role was, quote, to pillory the communist regime and display it as being ridiculous as well as cynical and evil. Yeah. Okay, it's the BBC World Service, in their own words. A year later, he was seconded by the BBC to the Colonial Office, where he was appointed head of propaganda. That was the word they used for Harold Briggs, the British Army General, overseeing a brutal counterinsurgency campaign in Malaya, which was brutal. Okay, uh, British post-war operations in a number of countries, uh, Burma primarily, uh, Kenya as well. But really, uh, this stuff really, you know, it's up there with Vietnam in terms of how deadly some of the stuff was. Yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning as well that, you know, it also served as a model for the sort of things which America did in, you know, the global south. So um, although, it, you know, what was going on there in Malaya wasn't as quite as brutal as what America did to Vietnam, yeah. a lot of the a lot of the learn a lot of the the kind of anti anti sort of uh, counter subversion stuff that was developed by the former colonial powers is then drawn on and learnt from for the United States. Wasn't a, wasn't basically most of the country put in a concentration camp in Malaya? Wasn't this like they built a full city or something like half a million people went into a, basically a purpose built settlement they, built they, by the British? Was well, that Malaya? They, they depopulated. I mean, in Kenya they had uh, they had what essentially amounted to, to camps. I mean, I, the in in Malaya they. they um, they had depopulation policy, basically, which was the idea was these are these insurgents are based in the population. We need to divide the population off from the insurgents, and that more or less meant depopulating villages, which were seen correctly as supporting the um, supporting resistance, basically. Well, the point is that like. You know, n none of this seems to be recognised. I mean, I, I think a couple of points about um, this. First of all, yeah, that that informed the you know the unspeakable brutality of um, of, of America in in Southeast Asia. But secondly, this guy Hugh Green, and if you're within the sort of broadcasting establishment, you'll you'll know this name. There's no reason particularly why listeners should, but the reason why he's so revered is because he is. He led the BBC in what's tend to be seen as its golden period, its most liberal, sort of creative period, where it was seen as sort of moving away from the political establishment. So, this guy really is is an is an icon of of public service broadcasting, probably more than Reef, really. He was quite a very conser overtly conservative figure, you know. Green, he's kind of celebrated partly because he um, took a sort of a, a he, he kind of embraced social liberalism. He and um, he he was much more zeitgeisty in the kind of 1960s and prepared prepared to embrace some of that stuff. So not only was he involved in I mean he describes himself as a psychological warrior but he was also um he was also heavily involved in the whole vetting process of of BBC staff and he pushed for um MI5 to uh, extend its vetting program <clears throat> quickly so I, I mentioned Sir Harold Briggs who was in charge of operations in Malaya this is from such a reliable source as Wikipedia I've talked about this before, so this is broadly correct. Uh, the Briggs plan is what he oversaw. Yeah, yeah, right. was a multifaceted, and here's the quote from Wikipedia, with one aspect being uh, the forced relocation of half a million rural Malayans, including 400,000 ethnic Chinese, from squatter communities on the fringes of the forest into guarded camps called new villages. Well, these were, there you go then. Yeah. These were purpose-built detention centres. I mean, they looked like villages, but they'd been built with the express purpose of surveilling a population of half a million people. Remarkable. And this was by the British. Yeah. And the British were Malaya from 48 to 60. It's a long conflict. Uh, again, most Brits aren't really aware of this. They think that the empire imperialism finishes with Gandhi and is done and dusted by the late 1940s. Not true. I'm going to finish the quote from that book because it's very important. So a year later, he was seconded by the BBC. And this is the gentleman... Hugh Green, who yeah. you've already said was the kind of icon of social liberalism and a shift in Moore's, domestic Moore's around social liberalism in the BBC in the 1960s. Uh, Green's mission there was to attack the morale of the resistance in Malaya, quote, to drive a wedge between the leaders and the rank and file and to create, quote, an awareness of the values of the democratic way of life, which is threatened by the international, uh, by international communism. So this Cold Warrior, Cold War Warrior mm -hmm. and this social liberal is, it would seem, indistinguishable from somebody overseeing not only propaganda in Eastern Europe, but also uh, who was a vital and willing uh, instrument of British colonialism in Asia uh, following the Second World War. Is that unique or was that a general nexus in and around the BBC after 1945? 
Well, I mean, the it's, it's worth going. I mean, the interwar period. I mean, I, I forget the name of the, the former scholars who I quoted, but it describes the BBC as being a willing evangelical, you know, um, supporter of empire. So it, it's you know, it's very clear in that interwar period that the BBC is is very sort of um, pro-imperial. What happens in the inter, in the sort of post-war period is, yeah, you get all of these people who are, you know, very sort of classic British elite, you know, um, have worked in propaganda and psyops and, you know, particular um, developing particular military expertise in the, in the Second World War find their way into the BBC. So Green sort of... Uh, mentor at the BBC was this guy Ian Jacobs who was director general before him who was part of Churchill's inner circle in the um, in the Second World War and he was offered the post of heading MI6 and he sort of turns it down and he gets offered the BBC instead and you see it you know if you can go on who's who if you search for BBC on the who's who between like 1945 and 1960 uh, and you'll have a whole bunch of military people or sort of PR propaganda experts who have sort of moved in um, from uh, from military service in the Second World War into editorial positions at the BBC. So you're saying that there was a a really big integration between the officers of Empire, the British Army, and the BBC that also extend it seems to the City of London. So you have a real nexus here of which we can understand as the classical British establishment: the city, public schools, Oxbridge, the army, uh, government, civil service, and the BBC. And it seems the BBC by well, certainly immediately following the Second World War, was utterly enmeshed within this nexus. Again, was that something that just sort of evolves over time? Because obviously nobody has that conception of the BBC at the outset. In the oh, Well, you'd have to be a genius to have that uh, sort of conception in the early 1920s. How did that evolve? How did it become so intimately imbricated within this classical understanding of the British establishment? Because there seems these key actors seem to just move from one to the other for a good well, for decades, basically. Yeah, I mean, the, well, the BBC from you know from the outset is, is sponsored by the post office, and it starts off as a sort of consortium of um, of, of radio manufacturers, right? So, it, so it's early um, from its earliest moment. You know, it was a state-sponsored corporate consortium, basically, for, for for various reasons that I go into the book. That's that's the way that the BBC developed in the in the nineteen twenties. Now, what they wanted then was to produce, you know, um, radio content, and the people they turned to for them, quite naturally, were the sort of um, Oxbridge-educated um, cultural elite who were coming from the same schools, the same university systems, which were like, you know, feeding into these kind of institutions of, of, of empire, and that was just simply how the um, how the British state worked at that time. You know, these people were trained at these particular schools, at these particular um, universities. And then they had this kind of prog career pro progression, you know, through um, the civil service in and out of the, the city of London and, uh, and Westminster and Whitehall. So, yeah, the BBC becomes quite quickly um, part of the British establishment. And, and John Reef, the, the founder, you know, he, he's quite proud of this fact that the, the, the BBC so quickly assumed this role. And, and the answer to, to how that came about, I mean, it, it's basically that the broadcasting was very quickly identified by politicians as being a very significant technology that they wanted to control and they wanted to integrate to some degree um, into the machinery of, um, of the establishment. And the Second World War was as well important in that. But, you know, the, the, the groundwork's laid in the 1920s and... Um, the BBC plays such an important role in in the Second World War, but the, by that point, you know, its its sort of position within the establishment is just you know completely taken for granted. I mean, but more than that, I think it becomes, you know, associated with the very sort of essence of Britishness and, and sort of national identity. You know, moving on, how extensive was the process of vetting potential employees at the BBC? And that doesn't just extend to journalists, but to engineers, people throughout the production, what we'd call today supply chain, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, how imbricated was the BBC within more general counter-subversion strategies from MI5, MI6, um, especially after the 1970s? Yeah, so we, we, we've talked a, a little bit about um, counter-subversion, um, anti-communism in, in the Cold War, which was you know very important in the BBC. Um, people probably don't know this story, but there was the BBC also MI5 vetted all of uh, around... 
first of all, slightly less than half of the amount of people working at the BBC. And as the BBC expanded, the sort of proportion declined slightly, basically around a quarter of staff, um, who a quarter of posts, I should say, um, was seen as requiring vetting, basically a covert approval by MI5 that the person who was going to have access to the microphone or have some significant role in program making or editorial policy would have to be approved by MI5. And what would happen is if you apply for a job, you send it off to the BBC, it goes to this sort of character um, sitting in a room somewhere in the BBC who then sends it off to MI5, who then stamp it with a sort of a triangle shape if they don't like the don't like the look of you, basically. And then um, the BBC won't employ you. And the sort of conceit was that the, the BBC makes its independent judgments on the advice of MI5. But of course, in reality... What, ha- what ha- seems to have happened is that if MI5 doesn't like the sound of your politics, basically you can't work at the BBC. And that went on from the mid-1930s to till the mid-1980s when it was publicly ex- exposed by the um, by the Observer. So for 50 years, you know, you could, if you were a leftist, you just simply couldn't get a job at the BBC. Uh, or if you managed to wangle your way in. If you no, went, no chance of promotion. And... Yeah, so they'd also monitor um, promotions on the BBC. So it's possible you could sort of uh, say you joined the BBC and then you became, you know, you shift to the left. Then um, And then, you know, concerns might be raised that maybe, well, you know, this person, he seemed like a good, good egg when he joined up. But now he's, you know, he's saying all kinds of things about um, about war and, and, and communism. And, and then you could be, you'd be categorised as, as a subversive, basically. They had these different sort of categories. If you're category A, which I'm sure you would be, you don't get a job in the first place. If you're a category C, um, like maybe members of the Labour Party, you know, they're just sort of keeping an eye on you and just make sure you're not up to um, any, not to no good. So, again, quote from the book. According to the official history of the Secret Service, MI5 vetted around 5,000 out of 12,000 posts in 1952 and sent adverse reports on one in 10 applicants. I mean, that's an industrial yeah. effort. Right? Nearly 50% of posts are being vetted by MI5 in 1952. And... Clearly, that's unacceptable in a democratic society, but it does make sense in 1952. The thing is, like you say, this carries on all the way into the mid-1980s, and it only stops because it's un- uncovered. And again, it, it does decrease proportionally, but it is still effectively an industrial effort here. So a declassified BBC document from January 1984 provides a breakdown of the number of vetted posts within the BBC that decade, excluding those in engineering and those areas covered by the access list. In 1981, a total of 5,728 out of 23,888 BBC posts, roughly a quarter, were classified as formalities posts. So what would that mean, the formalities posts? So formalities posts is their sort of euphemism for anyone who has any involvement in what's going to be broadcast, basically, or might have some sort of involvement. So there's these kind of debates in the files that have become disclosed as to, you know, what what should be a formalities post, what shouldn't be a formalities post. At one stage, it sort of said, oh... You know, people just reading out the news, they're just reading out, you know, a, a script. There's no way they're going to be able to get any subversive material in there. And then they, they think, oh, well, maybe we can sort of degrade these kind of, maybe they don't have to be formalities posts. And then they decide that, well, on radio, you know, no one's really keeping an eye on you when you're reading out the news. So you never know, you might sort of let something slip and then they change their mind on that. But basically, formalities post means that, you, uh, your, you, those posts are subject to counter-subversion vetting. So there were different types of vetting. Uh, some of them were to do with the idea that uh, you would have access to, you know, confidential, confidential information through the Foreign Office. And counter-subversion vetting was explicitly political vetting of people at the BBC. And the formalities post was a post where you might have some influence over what the BBC broadcasts, and that therefore you need to be approved by number five in order to do that. So, again, trying to wheel this into contemporary discussions, we often think that a lot of the things, you know, that are commonplace now, we think of them as new. So one is, of course, domestic extremism. And we see this as shorthand for the state trying to effectively ostracise anybody who doesn't or who is actively working against the maintenance of the status quo. Um, And we think of that as quite a new thing. But, again, here's a quote, and this is from that Observer story. Was it in 84? Uh, 85, I think. 85? I could be wrong. Yeah, and it quotes John Arkell, and he says, quote, It would be surprising if a broadcasting organisation did not take some protective steps to prevent extremists having undue... And these are people that could just disagree with war, right? Yeah. Or British foreign policy. Uh, it could be anything. You know, you could, they, some people have just sort of signed a petition against war, which right. maybe some communist, you know, pioneered. As they in may have a proper, friend as in, yeah, yeah, or, who's in the militant or something. Yeah, or, the, you, know, it, you know, you might have somebody in SWP who, uh, you know, sent you a letter or something. Yeah. It, could be, it could be anything. 
did not take some protective steps to prevent extremists having undue influence over the air. Undue, well, which basically means none. In the interest of security and of fairness to the public, which I find fascinating, kind of obfuscation between security and public service broadcasting. Obviously, these are two yeah. distinct things. Again, that seems almost like the sort of thing you'd hear from Tony Blair, very early noughties. But what I think this book does superbly well is it shows actually these are quite old narratives and these are quite old means of keeping the wrong people off Just a, yeah, a, a sort of a footnote to this, which isn't related to my BBC stuff, but I did do some, uh, I did a report with some colleagues a few years ago, which was looking at this whole counter-subversion extremism kind of stuff and, and where that was coming from. And if you look at the think tanks that were pushing that, which, which pushed the government's prevent agenda... They very explicitly draw on these Cold War counter-subversion models. You know, they, they were releasing reports, Policy Exchange, Centre for Social Cohesion, saying we need to learn from what MI5 did in the Cold War. And the, these conservatives learned from the Cold War thinking that there was this ideological struggle and we had to have the same ideological struggle against radical Islam today as they see it. And they, they explicitly said, let's move away from the idea of security policy and towards the idea of uh, this sort of notion of the battle of ideas. And they drew on this stuff, right? So... It's not just that there are historical resonances here. Um, current political actors, the conservative actors, are learning from from these things in the same way as people, were, you know, the Americans were learning from, um, you know, the the Briggs plan. And just worth mentioning that. Yeah, no, excellent. Can you go into and this builds on the point we made ten minutes ago about the World Service? Can you go into the IIRD? This is fascinating. Yeah, the well, the Information Research Department was a um, it was actually quite a large propaganda um, initiative that was that came out of the British state. I think it was in 1947. It might have been 1948 when when they founded it. And um, it was, so this is the Labour government. Um, and basically, it was a foreign office. It, it was primarily coming out of the foreign office, um, a covert um, anti-communist um, propaganda operation. It was run by the British state um, up till the 1970s. Uh, I, think, I think until 77, it was, um, it was discontinued. And basically, they were trying to promote um, anti-communist uh, leftist ideas. And it was part of a much broader... Um, anti-communist uh, propaganda effort that was obviously coming from the United States, which is actually a little bit better known, I think, on the left. For example, like, you know, the, the CIA's involvement in, um, you know, setting up these kind of phony journals and, uh, you know, promoting kind of anti-communist uh, figures on the left who, who later take this sort of journey into um, neoconservatism, which is partly why people start to get interested in this stuff in, in recent years. Uh, the same thing was going on in Britain, though. So they, they were supporting particularly... Um, sort of people who would uh, be against uh, unilateral nuclear disarmament. That was like one of the key struggles that were going on in the Labour Party, you know, in the, in the post-war Labour Party, where you had this sort of split between the, um, you know, the peace movement, the, the unilateralists, and later it was the Benites with the right-wing Social Democrats and people like Dennis Healy, who were quite close to the to the IRD and were and basically what they did was that they um they sponsored particular publications, they distributed propaganda and um and and they did that very close first of all the bbc was a very useful outlet for them i mean it was described by um by them as their, their best customer but also bbc monitoring which we mentioned earlier was very useful for them to take foreign broadcasts to be translated and then to use that um to distribute um particular um, stories which could then arm um, anti-communist um, leftists and trade unionists and people like that who, who were essentially sort of propaganda assets. But also nationalist movements, because you say here that the IRD was key in undermining, defeating Nasser-inspired independence movements in the Middle East. So yeah. Arab nationalism, for instance, would yeah, be another which one. which was, you know, see, seen as the key kind of um, threat to uh, to Britain in the um, in the in the post-war era, when when Britain still had these sort of pretenses towards uh, running sections of the world in partnership with the United States, with Suez obviously being like a key kind of turning point there. Um, you know, the, the, the British were sort of belligerently um, anti-nationalist, you know, and sort of portraying Nasser and the kind of, you know, pan-Arabism, people often call it, the, the, those kind of independence movements that were going on. And, of course, we had, like, in, in Iran as well, um, Mossadegh, who uh, was, was toppled by the Americans, really, but it was, the initiative came there from, from MI6. So, yeah, the, the, all, all of these kind of um, covert propaganda operations, there was two elements to it. There was a kind of... Basically defeating the sort of, uh, you know, third world, as it was called then, independence movements, but also um, trying to steer uh, the, the British left and the European left in the kind of 
right-wing social democrat, particularly pro-NATO perspective. So the, the idea here was generally speaking, although the politics of you know some of the American-sponsored um, propaganda operations differed slightly to, from the British ones, but it was broadly speaking that to try and keep Britain and the Labour Party uh, within the kind of American-sponsored um, you know umbrella, really. This is a great quote about the um, about BBC monitoring. And it's very pithy, so I'll say it. In summary, during the Cold War period, the BBC was not only distributing propaganda material in close cooperation with the British state, it was also supplying the intelligence on which that propaganda was dependent, which is BBC monitoring. Yeah. Um, so moving on, uh, again, into the contemporary period. Who is Frank Gardner? And why should listeners find his biography particularly interesting? Well, I mean, so he's this is the um, the BBC's security correspondent, and he was um, he was working as a foreign correspondent, I think, at the, at the time uh, of the um, September 11th attacks, and he was basically approached by the BBC to become. He says in his own account, his own yeah. um, uh, his own book. Um, I, I was essentially asked to become the, co- the the war on terror correspondent. That sounded a bit silly, so they asked me to be um, security correspondent. So it's a new post that the BBC introduced. Um, at the time, of, who makes know, that decision? Because it's so soon after nine eleven. Yeah, well, who I, makes that call? Um, well, I suppose it would it will be the News and Current Affairs um, Committee, which like which does these kind of things. But it will be signed off by the by the Director General. So at that time, that would have been uh, Greg Dyke. Um, but you you have a head of head of news as well. I can't quite remember who was in that position at the time. But he's he, he's approached and he. Um, uh, he's a formal, former territorial army officer. He's, uh, in, he's a former investment banker. And it's widely kind of assumed at the BBC that he's extremely close, let's say, to the um, security and um, intelligence services. And he actually he acts as a go-between um, during the Hutton affair, uh, or, or so it's claimed, um, uh, for, for MI6. He seems to be seen as his colleagues, uh, uh, by his colleagues at the BBC as representing those kind of interests. And he's very, you know, he's very candid about it. He said he was, um, you know, he's denied his kind of working for MI6, but he's known to have very good sources there. He's admitted that he, you know, he went to an interview of MI6 once. So there are these kind of suspicions about this guy, basically. This looks to me like a smoking gun, but uh, obviously we can't say that for sure. Uh, Here's the quote. Further evidence of Gardner's close relationship with the government's propaganda apparatus emerged in 2008 when a document of the Home Office's Research Information and Communication Unit, RICU, was leaked. The document, entitled Challenging Violent Extremist Ideology Through Communications, revealed an an RICU propaganda initiative intended to, quote, taint the Al-Qaeda brand and stated, we are pushing this material to UK media channels, e.g. a BBC radio programme exposing tensions between Al-Qaeda leadership and its supporters. It was soon noted that Gardner had fronted a BBC Radio 4 analysis programme called Al-Qaeda's Enemy Within, which precisely mirrored the propaganda strategy outlined in the document. The BBC admitted that Gardner and another BBC colleague had been in contact and met with RIC officials while making the programme, but denied that any material they provided had been used or that the programme had been made at the prompting of officials. This is remarkable. Yeah, I mean, so this was in uh, The Guardian or The Observer, I, f- I forget which, but yeah, so the, a propaganda operation comes to light and it's very clear straight away that uh, Frank Gardner has been involved in a program that clearly mimics um, the, the the sort of propaganda strategy that's been laid out by Riku, and you know they admit that they've met these people, but then there's a, a denial that you know that, that they've been involved in the program. I mean, but it's a classic sort of non-denial, isn't it? Because they're sort of saying, oh, we didn't really use their material, and we came up with the idea, and and the rest of it. Well, pff, you know, uh, it doesn't really look good for them if they they're they're, they're literally parroting a strategy that's come to the public light. And you know, think if we hadn't seen that document, no one, of course, would have known no. and, the, and not and there will be lots of other documents out there which of course we, we never see um, which are and and clearly someone like Frank Gardner at the BBC has these routine kind of consultations with these people and relies on them for sources as any journalist you know if you you have a particular that's the best opinion, case right yeah that's I mean, like that, a kind conservative analysis of what's going on yeah 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 uh, just to just to repeat this point so uh, Riku not the RICU as I said uh, this is their quote again. We are pushing this material to UK media channels, plural, but then they only mention a BBC radio programme, yeah. which would sort of indicate that given then, like I say, BBC Radio 4 analysis programme repeats the stuff, that he's their primary point of contact probably within broadcast media. But that's just speculation. So let's move on to uh, the Hudson Inquiry. Yeah. Um, to what extent has it meant 
the organisation literally can't do controver- like controversy or controversial politics. Well, you know, to, to what extent has the BBC ever been able to do controversial? Right. Um, but some people right? say this is new. Some people say this is post Hutton that they've been. You know, the hands are now tied. Well, you, you know, the, the story is obviously is a bit more complicated than that. I mean, basically, I, I think it's arguable that, I mean, it, it certainly seems to be the case that the BBC has become more risk-averse in the aftermath of, uh, of the Hutton report. But it's also worth pointing out um, some background history to this. So Andrew Gilligan, who is now a very right-wing um, Islamophobic journalist, um, has basically... Uh, runs this report which um, which claims that you know there's not going to be any weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and you know is all substantially correct and I assume people are pretty familiar with that story. The reason that um, Andrew Gilligan was reported was that actually there was this kind of move um, f- uh, from Greg Dyke at that time who then later gets pushed out of the BBC in the aftermath of um, the Hudson report to appoint people who are going to sort of break stories, do investigative work, and not simply parrot the sort of perspectives that are coming from the government. And then this actually comes up at one moment in the, um, I think it's in Hutton, where uh, uh, the, the um, is it Mark Laity, I think? he It was the BBC's defence correspondent who then later went to work for NATO. And um, Richard Sandbrook, who was head of news, kind of says, oh, you know, uh, we, we appointed Gilligan because we can't. We have to have people asking difficult questions about, you know, defence policy and the rest of it. Gilligan works for the Today programme. And Mark Laity sort of takes this as a slight on his um, on his reporting, you know, the notion that he's not, he's not a critical journalist. So the, the point is that Gilligan sort of brought in as this kind of rogue, you know, um, ju- newspaper journalist who's going to break stories in the classic way that um, the BBC hasn't done, right? So that's the context in which Gilligan um, is at the BBC and then this report comes out. Now, the other the other element of that, um, do, you, do you want me to talk more about Hutton and, uh, and Iraq? A couple mean, of minutes. Okay. Um, the, other, the other important element of that is, first of all, that the BBC was very pro-war in its coverage of Iraq. And the second point is that it was being briefed again by MI6, like at the time that they run the report. So the people who ran the Today programme at that point, Kevin Marsh and John Humphreys, who was then its its presenter as he is now, go and meet the head of MI6 um, shortly before they run this report. And MI6 more or less tell them there's not going to be any weapons of mass destruction. What would the media think if they're, you know, when when that happens, basically? They're trying to, and they're obviously nervous about what's going to happen. And that's what gives them, and there are, there are other approaches from the intelligence services to, to the BBC around this time, and that's what gives them the confidence to run that story. And the fact that Gilligan is sort of a rogue character brought in by Dyke is also important to understanding you know, why that report runs. But this is a key point, and I think the book expresses this very clearly, because clearly there are contradictions in the BBC, and it's difficult to paint the corporation as an establishment stooge when the likes of Andrew Gilligan are reporting what he reports around David Kelly and WMD, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you make this very clear, is that that meeting with MI6 gives them the confidence to go with this in a way because there is a a contradiction, a tension within the establishment. Yeah, that's which, absolutely right. Which makes possible this reporting on the Iraq war. So that in no way then undermines or discredits the claim that the BBC is an extension of yeah, I mean, establishment I think, interests. You know, I, I think the evidence on this is just completely clear. You know, it's, it's, it's a non-argument saying that, oh, the, the BBC um, upset the government and therefore it can't be an establishment broadcast. The whole point of the, the concept of the establishment, um, which I think is quite a useful one, is that it incorporates not only the government, but the broader state and other institutions, that which, you know, at the top of British society, basically. So you don't have to say that the BBC is an instrument of the government, even to say that it's a state broadcaster. You know, the, the state, by definition, doesn't just incorporate the government, and the establishment is a broader term, you know, which incorporates institutions like, you know, Cambridge and uh, Oxford and Cambridge and, and, you know, elements of civil society and, and the BBC. So, you know, this sort of notion that an establishment broadcaster can't upset a government is just absurd. See Ralph Miliband or Antonio Gramsci for more, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Right. So we've got just over 15 minutes left. You're listening to Navarra FM here on Residence 104.4 FM. I'm going to big up the Navarra party. Buy your tickets now, please. It's on Navarra Media Twitter account. I think it's pinned to the top. It's looking good. And we're going to make an amazing announcement in the next couple of days about someone who may be DJing. So check that out. Tickets are £3 if you're unwaged, £5 regular, £7 solidarity. Be great to see as many of you as possible. It's the twent on the twenty second, Oslo and Hackney. It's a great venue, so I hope to see many of you there. This is a great conversation, Tom. I wish we had longer. Yeah, I had a we did a podcast with Michael Walker about momentum. It was one hour ten, and I think 
we could probably fit this all in in one hour time. We don't have one hour time. We have one hour. So, uh, but also for regular listeners, there will be no more Navarra FMs on residence for the rest of the year. We have our Christmas break. I think we're back in early January. Anyway, back to the show, Tom. So, 15 minutes left. Let's try and get as much out as we can. There's a claim, which is almost, well, it's older than I am, <laughs> that the BBC is left wing. Yeah. All the evidence seems to indicate the contrary, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Okay, so, uh, you know... And where does this claim about the BBC being left-wing come from? Well, you know, in some sense, it, it comes from the earliest time of the BBC. You know, the, the right immediately claims that the BBC is left-wing. And, and an element of this is just simply about the fact that we have, you know, two sort of wings of the, you know, the political class, if you will, where, where one side will, of course, make claims of, of um, partisanship to the other, which is a very comfortable thing for the BBC to say, right? Oh, we, we you know, of course, we get attacked from both sides, so therefore, you know, we, we must be in something right. We're about in the middle. Okay. Well, first of all, almost every scholarly um, study on the BBC, forgetting left and right for a second, will will find that powerful interests in in society will predominate. So, whether you want to characterise that as left or right, I mean, I don't know. But I mean, I, I think most people on the left would consider the main differences between left and right as being questions of power and inequality. Which, if you take a broader sociological understanding of the concepts of left and right, rather than just parliament. You know, I mean, the answer is pretty clear that the BBC is not a left-wing institution in the sense that you or I would um, understand the term. Within the sort of, you know, political wings of uh, of the political elite, classically, you know, they do try and carefully balance Labour and Conservatives, but most studies will tend to find, to some degree, a little sort of uh, to be weighed towards the Conservative side. Or, I mean, you or find, some you, you cite data which shows that both ITV, Sky, basically every other broadcaster in the UK. These all have much smaller market share than the BBC, obviously. Yeah. I think with TV, it was. Yeah. Um, are more balanced in terms of both parties. Well, that came out of the breadth of opinion study, which was one of the um, the largest studies that they did. Uh, and it was comparing yeah, the BBC's coverage of broadcasts. And they found that conservative interests were much more, were overrepresented on the BBC, which wasn't the case for all the other broadcasters. But I mean, there have been other studies of this which have looked at questions of political balance. Sometimes it's completely balanced. Other times it seems to be balanced in the conservative direction. I'm not aware of any scholarly studies that tend to find a left-wing bias. OK, so that's the proviso to this. Where does the idea of left-wing bias come from? As I said, it starts off very early, but actually it really starts to get politically mobilised with the rise of the new right in the 1970s. So first of all, you get Mary Whitehouse and the sort of social conservatives who come up with this kind of idea that what's gone wrong with Britain is this sort of, you know, the hippies are sort of running wild and the gays and everything, family values have declined. And, you know, something needs to be done about this kind of permissiveness because, you know, my God, our society is collapsing, right? That sort of becomes a sort of a, a proto-Thatcherite kind of um, movement um, where the BBC is seen as this kind of liberal vanguardist kind of left-wing institution indoctrinating everybody with its kind of um, lack of sexual morality and, you know, cultural permissiveness, sex and violence on TV and that sort of thing. Okay, so there's that. Uh, when the Thatcherites really get into swing into action, they absorb a lot of that stuff and um, they start to attack the BBC as being left-wing and as being inefficient in terms of its use of resources. So there's two elements to this. There's a sort of cultural wars type attack on the BBC, this idea that it's kind of culturally left and absorbed some of the liberal and radical culture of the 1960s. There's an element of truth in that. And um, and that it's a sort of status institution, it's inefficient, it's, you know, finances are out of control. And as Thatcher comes, you know, as Thatcherism comes to the fore, they go after the BBC quite strongly. And the, the, the accusations of left-wing bias are, are very sort of prominent in that. So you have people like um, Norman Tebbit, who is a sort of, you know, right-wing attack dog from the 1980s, is still around and wrote some article about how... The other day I saw about how Britain, you know, Muslims are undermining British values or some other nonsense. But he's been saying these kind of things for years. And he and basically the Conservatives at that time, you know, they were reacting against the sort of post-war consensus, that sort of Keynesian, if you like, um, sort of political economy. And they were reacting against the 60s liberal culture. And the BBC was seen as a sort of exemplar <clears throat> of both, right? This sort of patrician um, status broadcaster, which was reflecting some of these different kind of social mores which were coming to the fore in the 60s and 70s. So I think you make a great assessment analysis about Thatcherism. We don't think of Thatcherism as necessarily a socially conservative project. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you isolate this correctly. You say their view of the British economy in 1979 was, that it was so poor that the project was primarily economic, at least initially, yeah. and that the Thatcherite social conservative project doesn't really kick into the second term 1983. Uh, I'm sort of, I'm partial to that explanation. And that this criticism of the BBC is twofold, so it's a it's a it's a neoliberal critique, effectively of a of a 
publicly funded model, yeah. but also of a move to uh, more socially liberal values after the 1960s. Yeah. This seems, the latter part of that seems correct in so much as the BBC does seem to reflect change social mores after the 50s. Yeah, I think that's correct, yeah. Is this, so, okay. Let's By the way, it's worth mentioning that in, in the Thatcherites and the New Right, it did have a kind of fairly sophisticated analysis of how these two things inter interlink. I mean, if you think of someone like James Buchanan, public choice theorist. Yeah. He thought that basically a Keynesian political economy with its sort of like... Um, you know, the way it would sponsor these kind of like vested interests and these sort of wasteful institutions would create laziness. And that with, so without market discipline, morality would be eroded. And you can see that in some of these new right sort of ideas, right? So factor four, that if we have these kind of sort of weak institutions which don't have the discipline of the market, that, would, that creates a lack of sort of moral values. And that, and that it's actually in these kind of wishy-washy liberal institutions like the BBC that these left-wing ideas sort of start to proliferate, you know, and they need to be shook up and disciplined with, like, with the market. Didn't right? James Buchanan want to privatise air? <laughs> well, I, I don't I know. Think so. Quite possibly, yeah. I think um, so. I remember reading one of his because I was the logic of collective action, Manker Olson. It's that genre of literature, yeah. and I remember reading some of the background literature. James Cannon was one of them, and uh, I think he wanted to privatise that. Anyway, we haven't got long, so we need to kick on. What I wanted to say was this: in short, there is some truth to right-wing cri criticisms, critiques of the BBC as being left-wing, in so much as it seems to me it's quite a rarity in British public life. It's a it's a classically liberal organisation, right? So it has it aligns social liberal more social liberal mores today, yeah. With as we're going to talk about in the last ten minutes, <laughs> um, an attitude towards big business, corporate interests, which could be construed as economically liberal. So it it seems to think the market knows best that business can allocate capital more efficiently than the state, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it aligns both an economic liberalism with a social liberalism. Mm -hmm. So when the right attacking the BBC about its social liberalism, somebody like a Quentin Letts or a Peter Oborn, they can be right to an extent. And when the left is saying, well, there seems to be a disproportionate coverage of the of, of business, of finance, there are industrial reporters. When you talk about the economy, it's a very... Uh, reductivist understanding of the economy. It's about the stock markets, about GDP. It's not about wages. It's not about living sense. Both camps are kind of right. Yeah, and I think you know if you see, if you see these sort of debates about the BBC and its left wing bias, I mean these days it's mostly um, it's coming out of most of the debates have been around immigration and the EU, which are issues on which you know the sections of political elite are themselves split. But also, you know, particularly coming from organisations like the, the, you know, the Daily Mail and the Telegraph, who, you know, really just don't like a lot of the social conservatism, which which has more or less been absorbed by the BBC. I think the BBC has a kind of political sense of gravity. I suppose it would be a, a sort of a liberal nationalism, really, yeah. um, in, the, in the aftermath of... Um, the 1960s. I mean, I, I think it's also the case that so, a lot of that has been eroded in um, in the aftermath of Hutton. There's been a, a real step, uh, a real drift, a rightward drift, I think, um, from, you know, Dyke who sort of came in and actually said some good things like, you know, the BBC is horribly white and wanted to change that to a, a sort of flirtation with, with right-wing populism, which is, you know, part of the influence of, of the press, and is, which I think sets in in this kind of political inertia that you get at the BBC in the aftermath of Hutton under Thompson. There's a great couple of quotes here. One is about Andrew Marr, where he says the BBC is publicly funded, yet has an abnormally large portion of younger people, people of ethnic minorities, gay people, etc. It doesn't reflect the general public. Yeah. It overcompensates. And then you look at 2011 census data and you look at data around the BBC, it almost perfectly, in terms of its BME composition, almost perfectly replicates yeah, broader the society. As a whole. Although so the, not at the top, I should say. No, no. But so what Mar is saying here is effectively it seems to be an outgrowth of an unconscious racist bias. Yeah, I mean... And I he, doesn't, he doesn't actually understand what Britain looks like today. If he, if he thinks that... I think the BBC has, you say something like around 12.3% uh, of the BBC is BME. Britain today, 14.1% of people are BME. Yeah. He doesn't think it's reflects a very white country. Where does that come from, quickly? Well, I mean, I think part of it comes from this kind of attacks from the Daily Mail, you know, and this sort of, uh, and, and the reactionary press, this sort of notion that, um, you know, the, the kind of, uh, yeah, a reaction against multiculturalism, which was like a really sort of started to, to, to come to the fore, particularly around 2006. And, and the BBC found itself on very shaky ground there. I mean, I remember they had um, this kind of, 
seminar, I can't remember what they referred to as, but they had a bunch of journalists and, you know, and they're kind of discussing, you know, do we need to be bringing in these more sort of extreme voices, these kind of debates over immigration? And they were talking about, you know, uh, what what role does the hijab have and these kinds of things. And, and that, so there's this kind of embrace of... Um, that very reactionary agenda that, that was really, I, I think, sort of, yeah, starts come to the fore around um, around 2006. And, uh, you know, the press has played a huge role in this in terms of where the BBC sees itself on the political spectrum. Yeah, well, because the um, print media is so incredibly right-wing in this country, right? Yeah, it's very right-wing. It's, you know, and it, it doesn't, and it's important, you know, to realise it doesn't just reflect, you know, public opinion that, uh, you know, the, the press became more right-wing at the same period of the rise of Thatcherism when the BBC in different ways was itself kind of um, transformed. So the BBC has always deferred to the press as sort of part of the national conversation and that skewers it um, in these directions and it, you know, and, and it makes this, um, and gives voice to all of that sort of critique of, you know, multicultural Britain and this sort of idea that somehow, you know, white people are getting a tough time and particularly white men. And we've, we've seen that again and again, haven't we, in the last like 10 years, I suppose. To confirm and compound that point, you bring up a fact around newspaper backing of the two major parties I think it's around the 51 election yeah uh, and you said it's basically a 50 50 split between the Tories and Labour of course more recently I think in 2010 only the Daily Mirror backed Labour in the 2010 election yeah I think in 2015 I think the Independent backed the coalition I think the Guardian backed Labour so it's two but that's clearly changed and so like you say it's not a reflection of public opinion it's you could say driving public opinion, but it's a reflection of elite interests which have moved radically right. They've moved radically towards uh, best interests of the city and a big business in the last 40, 50 years. Yeah, and there's good evidence, you know, that has an agenda-setting function on how the BBC reports as well. I mean, there was a, um, some work that uh, Justin Lewis at Cardiff did on this, and he looked at the particular agendas on which Labour was um, strong. So it was like housing in the NHS and the, the issues on which the Conservatives were strong. And he showed that, uh, you know, the BBC, whilst it was very balanced in, in, in its tone and it was very um, careful to balance between the different political parties, the, the, the issues that were mobilised in the, uh, the general election were reflected in the reporting of the press. So in quite, the, the press can have a quite a subtle agenda-setting function in how the BBC reports. Final point. I and mean, this is why I wish we had 10 minutes left, because we only have five minutes left. Uh, John Burt. Yeah. introduces um, an internal market, although it's called something else. Producer choice. Producer choice. Yeah. So it's a bit like the NHS, around the same time, introduction of an internal market. And this is meant to, of course, lead to devolution, choice. You say it leads to more managerial diktat, more top-down uh, content orientation, production, content strategies. You also say it increases overheads. So this, to me, seems almost like a a perfect microcosm of neoliberalism, and yeah. this is effectively the neoliberalisation of the BBC, in so much as it does the complete opposite of what it says it's going to do. But this is always, you know, this is a central lie of neoliberalism, isn't it? The idea that, first of all, um, you know, markets will create efficiency and that precarity will, will be creative. You know, it's the, it's the two kind of myths that inform the Burtis strategy. John Burt, um, for li listeners who don't know, he was Director General from in the 1990s. He was previously direct Deputy Director General. He was very close to neoliberals. He used to go for lunch with Keith Joseph, hang out at the Institute for Economic Affairs. And he, yeah, he produces this whole managerial process that at the time was called New Public Management, which is basically a forms of um, reorganisation of public sector bodies which would reflect business principles. It was all coming out of public choice. So we mentioned... Um, James Buchanan earlier, this was a central part of the neoliberal vision was to restructure the state um, in accordance with neoliberal sort of political philosophies to create competitiveness and introduce certain kind of incentives that will coerce professionals to act in a certain way. And this was informed by the idea that, that public service is a myth, that it just simply represents the interests of bureaucrats. And the way that we could get around that sort of pathology of the social democratic state was to introduce these kind of um, incentivizing, marketizing structures. And the same thing happens across the public sector. And this just creates more bureaucrats. And it creates more bureaucrats, it creates more inefficiency, and um, it does exactly the opposite of what it says, and I, what it says it's going to do. And I think, you know, this is one of the things that people just haven't noticed about the, you know, actually existing neoliberalism, is that it, it doesn't actually do what it says on the tin. And it's been a real... Um, I think the left's really missed a trick on this point to understand, to look at what's really going on. And I tried to describe that with the BBC as a sort of microcosm of changes that were going on across British society, which were informed by the same sort 
of political philosophy which was lying behind you know, much more obvious facets of neoliberalism, like privatisation and deregulation and the rest of it, things we're more familiar to discussing. You cite an evaluation study which notes, quote, the increased workload, including reporting, administration, negotiating, contracting, was widely reported. Another document notes that, quote, the increase in paperwork and the unanimous view that there had been a huge increase in the volume of transactions to the point of unmanageability. This is why Quentin Letts gives John Burt the dubious honour of being ranked number six in his 50 people who buggered up Britain. And that's what neoliberalism does. From the BBC to the NHS, it buggers things up. It's not efficient. It's not effective. We've got two minutes left. So we've got one minute left. We've got one minute left. Tom, uh, quickly. Yeah. What are your hopes for reforming the BBC, or is it not possible? 30 seconds. Well, we've just been through the Charter Renewal process, right? So the, the, the BBC is being once again reformed in a more neoliberal direction. The kind of uh, marketisation programme which Bert pioneered in the BBC in the 1990s is now being intensified and rolled out under the Conservative government. So there is a reform project at the BBC. It's being more neoliberalised, and I think that this moment gives us an opportunity to think uh, over in the more medium term about what kind of BBC that we might want, a more... A, a more democratic BBC and a BBC which might be able to foster um, more kind of wider democratic culture in the same way as the neoliberals use the BBC to create a more competitive uh, corporate media political economy, I think we can see we have an opportunity with an organisation that we own and um, belongs to us, which could not only serve as a sort of exemplar for other public institutions, but could have a wider effect on our democratic political culture. And we need to start having that conversation. We need to think ambitiously about these questions. Excellent. On that note, thank you very much. Navarra FM is brought to you by Navarra Media. To find out more about our work, head to navarramedia.com. If you've particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and, as well as subscribing to the show, leave a review. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarra Media, media for a different politics.